right, welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. My name is Scott McKenzie, and this podcast is uniquely positioned. And what I mean by that, we bring the medical industry, the medical professionals to you, and we talk about better pain management. We talk about rehab after surgery. We talk about improved mobility. And we talk about preventative care. And you know what else? We talk about so much more on this particular podcast. Now, thank you for joining this podcast. So let's get on with the interview. All right. Welcome to In Your Corner with Core Physical Therapy. Remember to go out to corephysicaltherapy.com because they treat everyone right. At Cora, everyone is welcome. Everyone is respected and everyone is supported to achieve success. Try to argue with that. Go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. You will not be disappointed and you'll be able to find great people like Cindy and Dr. C. Maybe not Dr. C, but Cindy, yes. So before we get into the conversation about peripheral nerve stem, Cindy, let's start with you. Give us a little background, a little story on who you are, and and, uh, then we'll go to Dr. C. Thanks. I um, graduated from physical therapy school from West Virginia University, and then I got my doctorate in physical therapy from Shenandoah University. I'm a certified athletic trainer, and I did a year of fellowship of applied functional science with the Gray Institute and joined Cora in 2019. Wow. You did a good job at that. You've, you've, you've done that before. Clearly, you've done that before. All right. Dr. Ethan uh, Colliver or Dr. C, give us a little story about you and your background. Well, yeah, I went to college at James Madison University and then medical school at Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine in Phoenix. I uh, did my internship through Columbia at uh, Basket Hospital in Cooperstown. I uh, did my residency in physical medicine rehabilitation at University of Utah in Salt Lake City and did a fellowship in sports and spine care at uh, Buffalo Sports and Spine Institute in Buffalo, New York. And I've been in Blacksburg since 2009. <laughs> you, you didn't do a stint here in New Orleans or out in you know, Barstow, California, where you grew up. You've been everywhere else. Count. Unless you move across the country, it doesn't count as a move. So. <laughs> I do like Phoenix, by the way. I do like that town. Good thing. All right, Dr. Rick, it's up to you, my friend. First of all, I want to thank everybody for coming and uh, participating. And this is a great topic. So uh, I'm really kind of excited for everybody to participate and uh, hear about peripheral nerve stimulation. So before we get started, Dr. Colliver, kind of tell us what PNF, PNS is, uh, explain peripheral nerve stimulation, and that, before we get into the specifics, kind of give us just an overview of patients who might be good candidates, how you determine who is a good candidate, and, and really what is, what is PNS, what is peripheral nerve stimulation? Yeah, sure. Uh, peripheral nerve stimulation is part of a technology called neuromodulation. And neuromodulation has been around, um, I think, since the 60s in medicine. Um, you know, you're, you're familiar with some other types, perhaps like pacemaker for the heart or uh, deep brain stimulators for Parkinson's disease, spinal cord stimulators for um, chronic back and leg pain. Peripheral nerve stimulator is um, also for pain, like a spinal cord stimulator, but it's very focused. And... Uh, where a spinal cord stimulator is implanted into the spinal canal and lays on the spinal cord, which is part of the central nervous system, peripheral nerve stimulation targets nerves outside of the spine. So, um, for example, if someone has shoulder pain, 
then we could target the axillary nerve or the suprascapular nerve um, to um, help cover their shoulder pain as well as if uh, with certain selections of uh, frequencies and amplitude, you can even help muscle contraction. So a great example is someone who's had a stroke that has um, shoulder subluxation and shoulder pain. You can um, put a nerve stimulator again on the axillary or suprascapular nerve and then um, set the setting so that it may just stimulate peripheral sensory nerves, which can help cover up pain signals by action either at the peripheral nerve itself or in the spinal cord or in the brain. You can also change the frequencies and amplitudes so that it targets the motor nerves. And that's kind of neat because once you start stimulating the motor nerves, you can actually work on strengthening the shoulder muscles in someone with shoulder subluxation. And that can help put the shoulder back in place and also help with their pain and function. Um, the mechanism of action, as I was saying, it, it's complex. So it works in the periphery. It can help with increasing blood flow. It can help with um, changing um, some of the pain proteins that can be uh, released in the periphery, like substance P, but it can also work by stimulating large fiber sensory nerves that then go back to the spinal cord and act at the spinal cord and the brain level to kind of turn the volume down on what the brain is perceiving as pain. That was excellent. So before, I wanna roll on that in a second, because I wanna to talk to Sydney in a minute about kind of the rehab of pseudo-subluxation in the shoulder and some of the stroke. But you know, in, in orthopedics, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, a sports guy, um, and I don't really do general orthopedics, but in the general orthopedic world, you know, we have TENS and we have um, NMES, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, cell stimulators, et cetera. So kind of explain the, the difference. Uh, are they just difference in frequencies? Or are they difference in application of, of the other modalities in terms of peripheral nerve stimulation? Or are they all under the guise of PNS? No, there uh, they're different techniques. So what you've been, most TENS units are peripheral so that you'll get a pad that you place on the person's skin. Um, using some of the same ideas, you're using electricity to help increase blood flow, decrease inflammation, uh, and help decrease pain being perceived at the brain. Uh, neuromuscular electrical stem is used to help contract the muscles. So it's not targeting sensory nerves, but it's targeting muscles. And so the impulse has to be much stronger, so uh, more voltage and milliamps so that you can get a muscle contraction. Um, peripheral nerve stimulator doesn't lay on the skin, so you actually put it within, gosh, I think five to six millimeters of a nerve of target. Um, and so you can actually um, uh, target um, the saphenous nerve for someone's knee pain because the saphenous nerve innervates the front part. Um, and if someone has tarsal tunnel syndrome, you can target the tibial nerve. Uh, I had a great case where I had a patient who had a complication from a carpal tunnel surgery, and they had transection of the median nerve, and they developed a very horrible neuroma. Um, and they were holding the hand close. They wouldn't let it touch anything. It was miserable to stroke the volar aspect of a wrist or the, you know, the front of a wrist, um, and nothing helped. 
they tried multiple surgeries, nothing helped. So we went in with a peripheral nerve simulator using an ultrasound machine, and I can see where the neuroma is and place the peripheral nerve uh, stimulator, the lead, right next to the median nerve. Um, and then we just tape a battery that goes on our skin. The benefit is that the battery pack does not have to be implanted like some of these older technologies, such as spinal cord simulators or pacemakers. Um, so she can tape that on and then with a little remote control in her hand, turn on and off. As soon as she put it on during the implant, um, she was ecstatic because it was the first time she had pain relief in God knows five years or so. Um, so the benefit of being able to put it within under ultrasound within a couple millimeters of the nerve means you don't have to target other nerves. You can use very small impulse strength uh, and, and just target the area of interest. So, so, the, so the electrodes implantable, the battery pack is outside the skin, as you said, unlike a spinal cord stimulator where the whole um, shebang is kind of implanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that can lead to complications. So a lot of devices that have implanted batteries, as you know, um, have increased risk of infection or the lead can break in between the wire and the battery pack um, and need revision surgery. No, I think that's a very good point. So kind of getting back to um, your initial example, which is a great example, let's talk about stroke a little bit. So Cindy, after um, Dr. Colliver starts his process, so we're going to have peripheral nerve stimulator to improve, let's say, pseudosubluxation or subluxation of the shoulder. Um, give us a little idea what the rehab of that entails, and because to me, this this is extremely important and, and obviously is a big component of um, the post-stimulation uh, process. So, so he, Dr. Colliver implants or uh, starts stimulation, sends a patient to you, um, kind of give us your evaluation and, and, and what, what happens subsequently. So on the evaluation after they've had the stimulator put in, which the beauty of this is it helps to control their pain and pain has limited their ability to move, to live life, to do anything. Once the pain's under control, they can tolerate movement of their joint. We do a lot of neuromuscular reeducation via, it's called PNF with manual techniques to stimulate the normal mechanics of the shoulder. Like, oh, this is, I can't loop my shoulder this way. I haven't done this in years. You're kind of reeducating the body to move like it's designed to move. And with the pain under control, with the, the stimulator, it gives us as therapists an environment that we can help the patients feel better, educate them in proper ways to move, do's and don'ts, so they don't accidentally create a new episode of problem. Um, it's been a very beneficial uh, team to do things together. And how long would they be in therapy for? I mean, if Dr. Collar sends a patient over, is that a six-week ordeal? Is that a home program? Is that a combination? What, what, what is this process in terms of time and what, what, what you tell the patients in terms of expectations? Our, it depends on how involved they are, obviously. But our goal is to educate the patient as much as possible so they don't need us very long. Um, we want to make sure they're doing things correctly. Um, you know, I tell them my job is to get fired so they don't need us, but we're always there. Um, and I've found from practicing many years is that a lot of times patients are hungry for how do I do this correctly or what do I do or what do I not do or how do I, you know, now I, how do I carry my grandchild or those type of things. And we kind of can go through those things and assess the deficits that they have from disuse atrophy, from not using their muscles, from being sedentary because of the pain 
to help them function more normally. That was great. So Dr. Colliver, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but let's, let's talk about, because I think for the average orthopedic surgeon, the average uh, physical therapist, maybe the average CMNR doctor, how to differentiate between central um, nerve, peripheral nerve, and, and I think you're, you're talking about spinal cord stimulators kind of rings home to a lot of us. So, so differentiate between central nerve pattern, peripheral nerve pattern, and kind of how the care and treatments uh, differ. Yeah, well, um, the, um, they can actually use a lot of the same uh, pathways centrally to help modulate pain. So we have um, um, pathways that come from the brain that will uh, descend and go down spinal cord pathways to where sensory nerves uh, enter into the spinal cord and then meet uh, another neuron at a synapse and then go up to the brain. So these descending pathways, their job is to modulate that volume of pain, basically. So um, a spinal cord simulator will act directly on these, what we call dorsal column cells. Um, and these cells are non-pain pathways. So these are gonna be like vibration and proprioception. And um, when you stimulate them, it uh, goes up to the brain, helps facilitate that um, descending pathways that will turn down the volume. Um, and also sort of decreases the volume that the brain is hearing pain. So it doesn't allow as many uh, pain signals to reach uh, to the cortex and be perceived. Peripheral nerve simulators acting very similarly at those levels, but um, because it's in the periphery, uh, you don't have to access the spinal canal. You don't have to put it in the spinal cord. And this is great for very focalized pain, whereas a spinal cord simulator is, it's kind of like, a fire hose, right? So you spray it everywhere, whereas a uh, peripheral nerve stimulator would be like a squirt gun. So you can just target it exactly and hit the target where you need it. So it can be very precise. Um, and uh, so they don't have to have, um, sometimes with people, spinal cord stimulator will complain about, they feel like their legs are vibrating because it's hitting everything all at once. Uh, peripheral nerve stimulator, they can turn the volume up or down as needed. Um, and it's just localized to one small area. Um, and the longer they're on it, another interesting thing with peripheral nerve stimulator as opposed to spinal cord stimulator is that the efficacy seems to improve with time. Um, with spinal cord stimulator, um, it's been around since the 90s, maybe late 80s. What we've seen after about five years, the central nervous system seems to get used to the stimulation and the efficacy drops. Um, not clear as to why that happens. Uh, they've played with some programming to to try and make that less likely to happen, but it is a known complication. Peripheral nerve stimulator, after a couple months, um, in the beginning, people will use it more frequently. They'll use it every day, maybe 20 minute intervals for several hours throughout the day. And then over months, they find that they don't have to rely on it as much. They may only have to use it every couple of days, maybe once a week. Um, they don't have to use it as many hours in the day. Um, not quite sure what that happens, but it's a cool side effect. So, so the tolerance for a central cord, because that's what is in the orthopedic literature, you know, after a while, that efficacy seems to diminish. So yeah. who, who's a perfect patient for a spinal cord stimulator? And who's a perfect patient? Um, and, and I think your, your analogy of, of median nerve transection, which, of course, is a disaster, um, is, is a good application. So if somebody had um, 
a peripheral nerve, lesion accelerated nerve is, is a good example because you do a lot of shoulders, you're going to see some people that have accelerated nerve patterns. So explain who, who's a really good candidate for a central cord stimulator and who's a really good candidate for a peripheral nerve stimulator. Well, um, spinal cord stimulator is good for people who have uh, diffuse symptoms. So if someone who has um, severe peripheral neuropathy from diabetes and their legs uh, on both sides hurt, um, a peripheral nerve stimulator is not going to be a great option because you'd have to wind up being putting peripheral nerve stimulators and nerves on the left and the right side, and they'd have batteries all over the place. You can put multiple in, but that's just not practical. Uh, so a spinal cord stimulator is a great option for that because it's one device put on the spinal cord, one controller, and it covers all the symptoms in the legs and in the back. Uh, you can also use it for the neck. So if someone has bilateral arm symptoms, say they had a uh, myelopathy, you know, uh, from arthritis and they had corrective surgery, but they're left with horrible arm symptoms. That's another great option. Uh, so you can target everything from the spinal cord. Uh, peripheral nerve stimulator is going to be much better for someone uh, who needs targeted relief. It can be done for the um, head and face. So it can be cranial nerve dysfunction, uh, people who have um, um, tic de la rue or people who have trigeminal neuralgia. It can be useful for that. People who have occipital neuralgia, so you can target the um, gray occipital nerve. I've done that before. Um, it, it just has to be a peripheral nerve that you can get to. Um, and there is um, the codes that we mostly use uh, in PM&R for pain are going to be for things below the head, though. Um, I don't treat trigeminal neuralgia for the most part. So I'm looking at... Um, you know, people who have limb pain, again, from shoulder arthritis is a great option. Um, knee arthritis, hip arthritis, uh, foot arthritis. Um, I've done those indications. Another one is someone who's had, a, they had a joint replacement like the knee, but they still have pain in the knee. Um, that's a great option for them. It's probably a lot of nerve related pain after a situation like that where they have persistent pain. Um, I've seen them work uh, higher efficacy in those people who have neurogenic sources, but it doesn't have to be. So it can be a nociceptive source of pain or just a, what we think of when you smash a hammer on your thumb, we call that nociceptive. Um, and um, uh, when you cut a nerve, we call that you know, neurogenic pain. So both are applicable for this. Efficacy does seem to be higher in my opinion with uh, neurogenic sources, but certainly uh, can be applied to both. Um, does that answer your question? Oh, that was great. That was great. So Cindy, somebody comes in, Dr. Cholera has recommended a central cord stimulator. Again, um, what, what is, is a rehab and what is a rehab? And, or are you just really treating um, somebody with, and I think peripheral neuropathy is a great example. Uh, so are you just treating the peripheral neuropathy or how are you treating the application and the use of uh, the spinal cord stimulator as it relates to physical therapy. Once the spinal cord stimulator has been implanted, our focus is to assess the patient, their range of motion, their strength, their sensation, their reflexes, how they're walking, how they're getting in and out of the chair, how they get in and out of the bed, to see what restrict restrictions are there and do just a gross movement assessment. Um, because the pain has been calmed down, they're able to move now and we can further assess. But what we see from not being able to move is muscle atrophy, 
um, weakness, stiff joints, um, poor endurance, you know, to walk across the room, they become winded because they've been so sedentary because they've been in pain. So physical therapy can be very helpful to restore normal range of motion, strength, whatever their deficits may be. And the big thing that I think is most important is educating them in proper posture, proper body mechanics, sleeping postures, how, what you do when you first get out of bed. So you're not creating an environment for the second episode of needing another stimulator. That's awesome. So Dr. Colliver, this kind of a, a, a problem we kind of, we see in sports and, and it's sort of garden variety, low back pain and sort of the hot topic has been medial branch block. So is there a place for RF and medial branch blocks? Is that something you would normally treat with a peripheral stimulator? So kind of walk us through um, what we used to call facet arthropathy or low back pain. And, and I'm going to ask you, Cindy, for the rehab after Dr. Collar answers this, but you know, what, what, what is your thought process on sort of this degenerative process that people are now uh, either blocking or uh, RFing in terms of um, low back pain? Yeah, um, a great question. So radiofrequency ablation of the medial branch, that's the nerves that innervate the facets in the spine. I think that's what you're talking about. Yes, sir. Um, that's been around, uh, I think, since the 90s as well. Uh, to choose that person, they have to have just low back pain. So if they have leg pain significantly, they're not a good candidate for that. Um, and you're targeting the um, area right next to the sets, uh, which are technically outside of the spinal canal. Um, and before you burn the nerves, you have them undergo a diagnostic meal branch block. Um, I believe the standard protocol that most people use is a two-block paradigm. What you're looking for is when you use an anesthetic, say lidocaine or marcaine, those are common anesthetics. And when you block those nerves on the patient's back that's suffering, say it's low back pain on the left side, and you block those nerves, what you're looking for is a change in their pain. For example, do, do, does their pain go away 90%? So they came in eight out of 10 pain and, and you do the block and for the next couple hours, their pain drops down to one or two. You know, that's pretty successful. And that's a person that if they do that on two separate uh, occasions with those diagnostic blocks, then you can go in and burn the nerve. Um, burning the nerve though, also denervates not just the facet joint, which could accelerate arthritis and degenerative changes because they're losing that uh, perception of, of pain and stress on the joint, but also denervates the paraspinal muscles like multifidi. That can be a problem too. The nerve does grow back, but um, a, a lot of spine surgeons are not fans of RFA because they go in and see uh, the damage it does to the paraspinal muscles. A neat alternative is peripheral nerve stimulator because it doesn't denervate the area. So you can place it next to a medial branch and help turn down the volume for the pain, but they still have the ability to sense the joint. You don't do any damage to the multifidite. You could theoretically change a setting so that it actually helps strengthen the multifidite. And we see with chronic back pain, a lot of um, atrophy of the multifidite. So it's an important muscle. Um, so it, it's a new concept where um, just in this past couple of years, patients I would typically offer uh, denervation as a way to help control the pain. I don't have to. So I can leave the nerve there, 
God put the nerve there for a reason. It has a function. Uh, and maybe help their pain without having to, you know, burn stuff. I'd that much rather do that. That was great. That was great. So, Cindy, how do you rehab? A uh, patient comes in. They've had um, they got low back, chronic low back pain, osteoarthritis, the set joint. Um, Dr. Colliver says, hey, we're going to go ahead and uh, place a nerve stimulator to address the medial branch. Well, what is a rehab protocol? How careful do you have to be with the electrodes, et cetera? Um, we don't mess with the electrodes. Um, that's his job. Um, and I'm thankful that he mentioned about the multifidus being shut off because every patient that you see, especially with chronic back pain, their multifidus is completely very poor strength. They have no idea how to activate it. And that's a key muscle because it goes from segment to segment in our spine. So we would start probably in prone with just some neutral core exercises. We also go to them being on their back, neutral core exercises. Then we work to them, a progression of them standing. We also watch them walk, as I was stating earlier. And a lot of these individuals, their hips are very stiff. So their gait pattern is off. Their stride length is short. They're um, limping a lot of times. And if you limp over and over and over and over, you're jarring your spine over and over and over. So we try to improve those restrictions that might be present and kind of help gravity to be their friend by having them reach in different directions. You can use tools like TheraBands, light weights. Um, but a lot of it, of what we found successful is just having them tolerate being upright against gravity um, with different moves, diagonal patterns. We might have them on their hands and knees or in tall kneeling, um, just to help them as a progression to be able to tolerate isolating their muscle function. That's great. Thank you. So Dr. Colliver, explain to us, for us dumb guys, the difference between autonomic and visceral pain patterns. And, and is, there, is there a place to address visceral pain patterns as it relates to uh, PNS? Oh, wow. Yeah, great question. Um, as I was saying before, it, it just has to be a peripheral nerve. The peripheral nervous system is made up of the somatic nervous system and also the visceral nervous system. Um, and uh, uh, the autonomic nervous system has that uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic innervation. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of back pain can be mediated by the um, uh, sympathetic nervous system. Um, and it can also cause pain in the viscera. So we have um, sympathetic afferents that can come from viscera that can transmit pain. Um, there is chronic pelvic pain, which some element of that is also uh, visceral and, and probably autonomic mediated. Um, meaning um, autonomic briefly is we don't really think about it. So like the rest and digest, when we eat, we don't really think about our stomach squeezing. It just does it on its own. When we breathe, it does it on its own. Our heart beats on its own. As opposed to the somatic nervous system where we actually oftentimes, you know, if you want to move your arm, you tell it to move and it does it. Um, but uh, autonomic is automatic in a way. Um, but these areas where we believe that sympathetic afferents and other autonomic afferents are mediating the pain, like chronic pelvic pain, uh, there is research showing that you can actually target these areas with a peripheral nerve stimulator, and it can help. Um, there uh, is one study that even looked at um, people who have overactive bladder and uh, don't fully understand this yet, but targeting the tibial nerve in the leg with a peripheral nerve stimulator 
has uh, improved their overactive bladder symptoms like 50%. Oh. The tibial nerve is not an autonomic nerve um, and it's not near the bladder, uh, but um, it must have some complex um, interplay with you know, the spinal cord and how the spinal cord mediates these autonomic functions. Um, and there's uh, probably indications for other abdominal pains like um, celiac plexus. Um, people who have chronic abdominal pain, one approach in the past would be to burn it with alcohol. Um, that's scary. This is not <laughs> something I treat. Uh, but this might be a way where we could actually stimulate the celiac plexus uh, without having to um, denervate it. You know, I think, yeah, I think that is always scared. I think most, most surgeons, phenol and, 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 and chemical ablation. So I, I agree with you. So in, in terms of results, somebody comes in, they have a peripheral nerve lesion. Um, what, what kind of percentages do you feel or what do you tell your patients? Do you tell them? You have a 50-50 chance or what, 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 what can one expect or how do you counsel them in terms of the, the potential uh, improvement? Yeah. Um, uh, the person who comes in and has a local pain complaint that um, we discussed peripheral nerve simulator, uh, the first step would be to first do a nerve block. So commonly you can try blocking just a single nerve of the area of interest. Say, for example, with the shoulder pain example, we block the axillary nerve with just some lidocaine. And then see if that helps their pain complaints. What you're looking for is at least 50% improvement. Um, and then the second step would then be to do the trial. So trials where we temporarily have the uh, lead on the axillary nerve connected to a battery that's held in my hand. Um, and so it's, you know, it's piercing the skin and I'm holding it and they walk around the clinic, um, an hour, 30 minutes, and just tell us how their pain complaints are. You're looking for at least 50% improvement. And, uh, and then if they get at least 50% improvement with that stimulation, then they're a candidate for the permanent implant. They have to wait about 15 days, come back. Um, but this time the wire, which is about in this case, typically about this long, um, gets implanted under ultrasound right next to the nerve. I put a little stitch in and they're good. People who go through those processes, um, those steps, um, in general for peripheral nerve simulation of joints, uh, they have close to about an 85% response rate of getting at least 50% pain relief. Um, it drops a little bit when we look at, you can do even intercostal nerves. So if someone has rib pain, um, say you have a, a, someone who had breast cancer and had to have surgery, radiation, and chemo, and that can be debilitating rib pain along that uh, rib. Um, you can do peripheral nerve stimulator there. Um, that e efficacy drops closer to about 55 to 60% uh, by my recollection. Um, but um, uh, of the people that I do a trial on, 50% um, will be a candidate for the permanent implant. So not everyone that goes to a trial is gonna respond. Um, so if I offer you a trial, you have about 50% chance of passing the trial. But if you get the implant, you have about close to 85% chance of getting at least 50% relief. Those numbers are actually pretty pretty spectacular. That's, that's great. 
And and what 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 are the downsides? What are the complications? What do you warn your patients of could go wrong? I mean, what what what's the bad? Yeah. Um, well, the complications for spinal cord stimulator are higher. Uh, the person has to go to the hospital. They have to typically they're put to sleep, and um, you know they have a needle placed into the spinal canal. So there's a risk of um, a dural leak. Uh, so CSF fluid can leak out, um, and they also have a much bigger pocket underneath their skin where they put the battery pack, which can, you know, infection is a big problem there. Um, you could have an allergic reaction to the medications during anesthesia. Um, you could have difficulty coming off a ventilator, um, and uh, infection is probably the biggest risk that you have there. Spinal cord stimulator, once, you, once you're past about two or three weeks, um, and you're past the healing process, uh, your, your risk goes down dramatically. You're not gonna get damage from the spinal cord stimulator giving you too much voltage. That doesn't work. Um, but uh, there's a risk of, if I remember correctly, close to over five years, close to 20% have problems with lead breakage or battery malfunctions. Peripheral nerve stimulator, um, we do it in the office. You're not asleep. Um, we use basically just some local anesthesia local anesthetic like lidocaine. Um, so you don't have the risk of anesthesia. Uh, there is still the risk of infection. Um, so we give you antibiotics before you do it. You could have an allergic reaction to the antibiotics, but we ask you what your allergies are, of course, before we do that. Um, so we watch it for the first two weeks to make sure that you're healing okay. But once you get past that, um, there's not really a lot of downside to it. Um, I haven't seen any infections after that two week period. Um, uh, some people, like I said, 15% or so may not respond. Um, and so they have this little wire implant in their body. Um, they can have that, they can leave it there. If it doesn't work, they can leave it there. But if they need an MRI of that knee, for example, say we did a knee one, um, you're not supposed to do an MRI of that region. You can still have an MRI, just not of the, the area. It has to be, um, like two feet away. Um, then um, you could go in and remove the lead. So I have had to do that. I've had patients come back in the office, use the ultrasound machine to help remove a lead because they say they needed more imaging of the area. Uh, or another option would be that in the scenario of someone who has breast cancer, they could um, need additional surgery and radiation chemo. So you would go in and remove the lead so that they could then get more advanced imaging um, to prepare for, you know, further treatment for the breast cancer. Um, but um, the battery pack comes off, so you're not going to have problems with the battery pack. Uh, you get a replacement if it does have a malfunction, but no surgery needed. Um, that arrives in a box in the mail. And, um, yeah, if you can use a remote, you can use a remote that uh, they have here. Um, so a lot less complicated. The risks, the risks are kind of minimal. I mean... Certainly infection, that's that's a risk of any intervention. But I, I don't really get the sense that there's a significant complication problem, um, e even though, you know, if you hear somebody say, well, we're going to put this wire in your body and it's going to stick out of your body, you know, there's a little bit of a visual where you're thinking, wow, that's kind of crazy. But on the other hand, and, and in my research it is podcast i really didn't really see a whole lot of complications so 
uh, to me, you know, it's, it's pretty enticing. Um, what, where's the future? Where's this going? What's the future in terms of peripheral neurostimulation? Because really, if you think about it, it it's kind of the perfect paradigm. Um, you're not damaging the nerve. You're, you're basically stimulating the nerve enough to resolve someone's pain. And like you said, and someone who's got chronic, like I have a patient, he's 40 years old, played six years in the NFL. He's got degenerative arthritis in the shoulder. You can't really replace your shoulder at 40 years old, 6'6", 325 pounds. But this almost sounds, and, you know, we can inject them, we can PRP him, we can do all kinds of stuff, but we're not really controlling his, his pain. So this really is, is, is a great answer. What's the future, and, and you know, what's gonna, what are we going to be talking about in 10 years in terms of peripheral neurostimulation? Uh, I, I, I think we're going to find a lot more indications and applications for it. Um, you know, uh, we were just hinting at this um, treatment of overactive bladder, right? Yeah, uh, so that's a, a very common problem. Um, it's underrecognized and undertreated, uh, but it can be debilitating. And um, other treatments might be um, visceral pain that we talked about. Um, I, I think we're going to see a shift where we move away from this concept of nerve destruction as a way of controlling pain instead of just uh, moving to nerve stimulation. So you can preserve the function of the nerve, but help control the symptoms without you know, causing damage. Um, I would like to see a more insurance companies uh, recognize <laughs> the utility of this. Uh, currently, uh, Medicare seems to be the, is on board, have great success. Uh, we're trying to work with the VA. The VA is open to it. So I think uh, we'll be doing some VA patients soon. In our area, the private insurances are are dragging their feet on accepting a new technology, um, but um, I, I think it's a heck of a lot better alternative than to you know what we used to have. Well, I agree, and I think you know the, the boogeyman and all these things that are progressive is uh, the private insurance companies, and we don't really need to get into that because that's a <laughs> five-hour podcast, but. Um, what did we forget? What should we have talked about that we didn't talk about? And Cindy, I'll ask you that first. Um, what 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 do we need to tell the listeners out there? Yeah, I think it's just very hopeful that there are alternatives to people that have chronic pain or pain is just controlling their life, and they've tried other options, medicine, surgery, and unfortunately, it hasn't worked. That this is a great medium to help control their pain and combine with physical therapy. We can help to restore their normal ability to move, uh, to enjoy life, to do the things that they like to do so that they can be a better version of themselves and not to sound cheesy with that, but it's a big deal. You know, we we're meant to move. And if you hurt all the time, you don't move and everything starts to shut down. So I think that, um, with the nerve stimulator and physical therapy, it's they're very complementary to one another. Oh, I agree, and I think that was well a little cheesy, but I think it was well put. So I think that's exactly right, Dr. Calder. What do we forget, and, and what should we tell everybody out there? And and you know, I'm I'm kind of in your camp a little bit after re researching this. Uh, to me, it is a great answer, and I don't deal with a lot of chronic pain, but I I, I think there's such a component out there of low back pain. And people with chronic pain, and certainly peripheral neuropathy, um, what 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 do we miss, and what what should what, what topic should we talk about that we didn't talk about? Uh, great question. So, um, yeah, pain is huge. Um, 
the amount of money that is put in the healthcare system to treat pain is astronomical. Um, in the U.S. healthcare um, and workforce, I think it's the number one cause of disability in the United States, low back pain. Um, and, you know, we have this horrible opioid epidemic that swept through our country from the 90s through the 2000s and 2010s that we're still dealing with. Um, this is an alternative. So people who can get access to this technology can decrease their reliance on medications, uh, which means less opiates. Um, and uh, we know what damage that that can do um, if we leave those people on that medication for long. I think that's a, that's a great answer. And I think the opioid crisis, um, which we probably created a little bit, medical community created a little bit, um, has, has been very detrimental to society as we read these articles of fentanyl overdoses, et cetera. And I agree with you. I think this is a, a, a much better answer, number one. And number two, maybe more of a permanent answer. I mean, you can only be on opioids so long. Again, you build a tolerance and then your doctor says, well, you can't have any more. Or your pharmacy says you can't have them anymore. And now you're looking for an alternative. And if you're not going to go up the food chain in terms of drugs, which you shouldn't, uh, this to me sounds like a great, a great alternative. So I think this is really, really interesting. And again, my research leading up to this was great because I really didn't know that. I mean, obviously we know about spinal cord stimulators. We know about peripheral stimulators, but I didn't really understand pain patterns and, and, and how diffuse the use could be. So for me, this was uh, very, very helpful. And hopefully for the therapists, um, the physicians listening, and ancillary healthcare, I mean, I think we really need to keep this in mind. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I actually learned something. I have a question. <laughs> yeah. And I do. I, I, I really hang on the uh, on even though I might not know some of the words, but I do hang on what's happening because I, I'm excited about how uh, medicine is constantly changing, evolving, and, and, and making, you know, becoming better. It's, it's really pretty exciting. What's a hokey? <laughs> a Cindy, winner. This one? A, win a winner. A winner. There it is. So <laughs> yeah, I... I, I don't the know origins are lost in the mythos. <laughs> I, I just had no idea what a, but I like Cindy, a winner. Yes. And by the way, I like your, you are meant to move. I didn't think it was uh, corny. I thought it was, I put it down because here we are. You're thank meant you. to move. Well, thank you very much. Hey, how do people get a hold of you? How do you get a hold of you, Cindy? What's the best way if somebody says, yeah, Cindy's pretty cool. I want to go and contact her. Um. Cora Physical Therapy in Blacksburg. There it is. You just say Cindy. And everybody goes, oh, yeah, Cindy. Everyone Cindy. knows. Everybody's like, oh, hush tones of Cindy. And, and Dr. C, how do they get a hold of you? By the way, I like your, your Gmail account. I can actually see your name at <laughs> Gmail. Uh, we're at Valley Sports and Spine Clinic in Blacksburg, Virginia. My office is about a mile and a half from Cindy's, I think. Well, there you go, man. You guys are great. Dr. Rick, good job, as always. And uh, oh, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. You guys were great. And again, I think it's a topic that's underrepresented. And hopefully, yeah. um, you know, people will listen and say, hey, let me give this a ride. Because clearly, um, yeah. 
that is a much better indication than some of the things we're doing for pain. And A, as Cindy said, it's not working. And B, um, some of it's going to lead to just more problems. And, and we know that that's happened over, as you said, since probably the late 90s, early teens. And we kind of kind of run into uh, uh, a roadblock that we can't cross. So, again, thank you guys very much. All right, listeners, we're going to have to wrap it up. Remember to go out to corephysicaltherapy.com. All roads lead to that particular website if you want good help. That's corephysicaltherapy.com. Remember, at Core, everyone is welcome, everyone is respected, and everyone is supported to achieve success. And I'm just going to have to add another one. You are meant to move. There you go. Thank you, guys. All right. Good night.